everyone. Welcome back to the Kowski cast. I'm Mary Kwiatkowski. And I'm Hannah Elam. And we are continuing to be spooky in the fall. Maybe it's September, maybe it's October. I'm not sure when I'm releasing these. You know, I'm going to go ahead and say that I'm pretty sure this is in October. And we are continuing our coverage of the Netflix original series, The Haunting of Hill House. We're taking a look back at season one to recap the episodes and talk about all our favorite ghostly moments. Today, we are diving into the eighth episode in the series, Witness Marks, which was something that I did not know the concept of before the episode, but they they taught it to me in the episode, so I didn't have to do any Googling, which is always nice, because I like it when my content just feeds me all the relevant information. Yeah, so we learned that witness marks are scars, and particularly around clocks, they're evidence of repairs done to a clock, so that you can have a log of all the work that's been done for it, but you have to know how to read them. And so we see here that the Crane children are certainly having to figure out how to read what's happened to them. Yes, and some are doing a better job of it than others, whether that's consciously or subconsciously. I think this episode is really interesting how it presents the different ways that the Crane children viewed the various hauntings in Hill House. We've been saying, or at least I've been saying from the beginning of this podcast, that it seems like Nell and Luke in particular were more affected by the hauntings, and they had very obvious direct ghostly encounters with the bowler hat man and the bent neck lady, but we find out in this episode, maybe there's some more ghosts that uh, people didn't even know were ghosts at the time, and they just sort of blended more in with the surroundings, and that's why it was not as apparent to some of the other children. This episode was a lot shorter than some of the other ones, which I think was partially by design because this is now the third episode in a row that's like boom, 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 sequentially right after the other ones. It was the day before Nell's funeral, the day of Nell's funeral, and now this is the evening of Nell's funeral. We've kind of hit a stride here of well, at least for me, making me feel like maybe we're hitting another important night or important event that we have to do a lot of lead up to. The other episodes have more been like time jumps, big swaths of time where the past section or the present section seem to take place over multiple days. I've noted that the past sections of the episodes for the last couple episodes seem to be creeping closer and closer to the final night. And even though this one didn't really creep that much closer because there wasn't a whole lot in the past section, in the present section, it was just one storyline told in order. There really wasn't any jumping around of time. Yeah, so initially we had to get our plot holes of the beginning filled in. And not necessarily plot holes, but just a fuller picture, right? Because in the first episode we see Luke and it looks like maybe he started using again. But when we see in the fourth episode, we find out that no, he actually hasn't been using. He's just feeling the effects of the twin thing of Nell being dead. And it really does feel like these last three episodes six, seven, and eight are really leading us to our penultimate episode of this season where it seems like we're going to get all of the Crane family who's still alive back at Hill House. Which is not good based on what we found out in this episode. Ah, if the if the house feels like it has unfinished business with the Cranes, which is a really nice way of stating what I've been saying, which is like, why is the house following them around into the real world? Because <laughs> it's trying to draw 
them back. These people, it's just, I don't know. Okay, this isn't really a would you rather, but I'm just going to ask you this here. If you had been to a location that then was haunting you in your real life and you felt like your only options were continue living your life, not going back to the location, but continuing to be haunted or going back to the location where 50-50 chance you die a horrible death, but 50-50 chance you end the haunting and can go back to your real life. What do you pick in here? So I think I would probably pick to go back to the house just because- Okay, you're I think, just as bad as them. <laughs> I think I would want the closure, right? I think it's a it's a closing of the loop <laughs> for me. <sighs> I mean, I guess I see that because your life, you'd be living such a tortured existence having to deal with this. I don't agree with Steve's notion in this episode that, like, anything supernatural just means that the people experiencing them are suffering from a mental illness. But I also kind of wonder if the show as a whole is kind of a metaphor for people with, whether it be mental struggles or emotional struggles struggles or drug problems or whatever it be, that it feels like unfinished business, that there's something that they could do to to write it or fix it. I'm not really sure. I don't really have a full-fledged theory here. I was just kind of noting that right now, that it seems like seems like there could be a bigger picture. Yeah, we've seen where the show has tried to hit on some hard aspects from Nell visiting a therapist and Luke being in rehab and even what Theo sees as a psychi- uh, psychiatrist, psychologist for children. And so so I could see they leave us Easter eggs as far as trying to, well, we pick up on Easter eggs that may or may not be there. <laughs> and I can see where the writers would want to lead us to think deeper about mental illness just with everything that has been exposed with the current season. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so why don't we go ahead and talk about what happened in the rather short past section. There were really only like two or three scenes that happened here, mostly surrounding Steve and Mr. Crane. Do you want to go ahead and talk about that? Yeah, so we see that Mr. Crane is trying to deal with the mold situation. He's working away downstairs and offers Steve to no longer help down there, but to help wrangle the kids once the mom is on her vacation or time away from the house with Aunt Janet. And then Steve finds a nice desk and he wants to give it to his mom as a surprise. I think it's more like a vanity, but okay. Yeah, vanity is a better word. He wants to spruce it up a little and give it a nice paint job. And when he's painting it, it looks like he paints over some mold, which probably is not the best decision when, you know, your dad's trying to clean up all the mold that's in the house, but whatever. He gives it to his mom. She loves it. It looks like there's some flowers on it. There's pictures of the family, but then something takes a turn and she smashes the mirror for no foreseeable reason from Steve's side. And like we saw in the previous episode, she's still looking a lot more disheveled and definitely on the verge of a breakdown is what it seems like. Yeah, so this sequence, I definitely noted the the mold. It was unclear to me whether or not Steve saw the mold or if he was just like reaching under trying to paint it, but you, from the audience perspective, we definitely saw that there was black deteriorating marks on the bottom of this vanity, and there were several moments throughout this sequence that were a little bit eerie. One was we have a straight up, the mom Olivia is talking in the twins room 
to presumably the twins who are not there. And then she sort of seems to shake out of it, turn around and wonder where they went as if she just was talking to them or someone else. And then when Steve finds the vanity, this is something I noticed. I don't know if you picked up on it, but earlier on in a different episode, I think it was in the Bent Neck Lady episode, perhaps, when Nell finds her cup of stars, she talks to Miss Dudley and is saying, hey, can I keep this cup and and all of that when she finds the tea set? And Miss Dudley asks, where did you find it? And she says, in the toy room. And Miss Dudley seems confused and is like, where? And in this episode, when Steve finds the vanity, Miss Dudley again, he says, I found it in the game room. And she's like, where? She doesn't seem to know where that is. It doesn't seem to be a place that exists in the house, according to her, which I have a theory on, which we can talk about more when we get to the present, because all of a sudden this started to click to me, but I definitely noted that both times. And then, of course, the mom punching the glass was something weird that happened, mostly because she is very happy, really appreciative, sits down, looks in the glass, sees something, presumably in the reflection, starts panting a little bit, almost like hyperventilating, and then punches it, and almost immediately after that sort of breaks out of whatever that trance was and apologizes again. So it is sad. In the present day, Steve is going to say that it was just a schizophrenic woman breaking down that he saw happening, which is very sad for, you know, a child to see anyway, but certainly seeming that we're finally getting more to this whole story. I think all of this really is just pointing us closer to the last night and more so we're getting some of our Olivia gems filled up and seeing from the kid's side what she's going through and and seeing her deteriorate and it really does seem like she needs to take that time away from the house. Yeah, we really haven't gotten almost any scenes in the whole show from her perspective. The closest we got was when she was looking for Nell in the house and she looks in the two different bedrooms where we're sort of following her. That's really the closest we have in the whole show of of getting a sequence that's kind of from her perspective. Everything else is usually from Mr. Crane's perspective or the kid's perspective or just talking about her in the past. So, and then we have another brief scene that's at the beginning of the episode that's one of these sort of present day, but a couple years ago scenes with Steve and Lee. We get to see a little bit more about why Steve and Lee are struggling and we're seeing them at an appointment for fertility. They've been trying to conceive for almost two and a half years and nothing's been working. Steve is very spaced out during this moment. And later on in the episode, we actually find out that Steve had a vasectomy right out of college and didn't even tell Lee ever. (laughs) Seemingly he has told her now and that's why they're separated. But he had a vasectomy to make sure that he wouldn't pass on his messed up genes, which is pretty messed up (laughs) to not talk. Oh man, Steve, these, these Crane family have a lot of communication problems. That's for sure. The sad part here for me is the fact that he hid this from his wife, who at this point they had been trying actively for two years and four months to have a kid, or at least Lee had been trying. And Steve was just going along with it, lying, potentially going to go through some sperm altern- testing. Yeah, some well, sperm testing and alternative conceiving methods, which are I know can be like very costly. And this is just something that's very can be very hard on a, on a person like Lee who wants kids is trying is very you know actively examining like probably I, I'm I'm assuming her own body and her own life and, and whether she has uh, the ability to conceive children etc and so not only the fact that he didn't tell her that he got a vasectomy but also the fact that he actively doesn't want kids and married her anyway I mean <laughs> the whole separation makes a lot more sense now because disagreeing on both how to raise children and also whether or not you want children is if not the top one of 
the top three reasons for divorce anyway. I mean, I'm not married. Hannah, you're married, so maybe you can give better advice on this. But like, for me at least, I feel like that's something that you really need to be on the same page about. And I know people change their minds, but this isn't a case where Steve changed his mind. This is a case where he knew since he was in college before he even met Lee that he didn't want children. Right. And he actively pursued that, right? There's no, well, I know in the office they talk about Steve Carell's character getting a reverse. You can reverse vasectomy. It is not permanent. So it's not like, it's not like he can't have, I mean, I'm also not a vasectomy expert. So like, I don't know if there's anything where after a certain period of time you can't or anything like that. But you certainly could. Also, I mean, I don't, I don't know if this is something that Stephen Lee discussed, but like, if he doesn't want to pass on his genes, then they could adopt a kid. Like, she could still there's raise still a child. Options. Yeah, there's still other options here. There's several different things that could be done. And so I, I think the deeper question here is, this is the one of, one of the things in Steve's life that he has not come to terms with himself of. He has felt like the members of his family have some abnormal that he doesn't want to pass on, which means that he considers himself to also have those, despite kind of denying it for years, like feeling like we're, you know, the house was normal, it's just mom and Nell or whatever. It seems like he's finally admitting, no, I also think that I suffer from some of these same things. You know, I've seen hallucinations in the last, you know, X amount of time. Not really sure how long he's been seeing things, which is the other thing we notice in the scene with Stephen Lee is that it looks like when he's in the doctor's office, he gets distracted by seeing someone who I think looks like his mom through the sort of pixelated glass of the office. And he doesn't tell anyone about that or say anything. So I think this is, we're just getting closer to like, Steve has some issues of his own that he hasn't sorted through. Well, and maybe he is just really good at denying those issues that he does have because we do learn that he has at least seen one ghost while he was at Hill House. And so there's definitely a lot more going on than he's willing to admit to. But it it is interesting to me that if he only thought there was mental issues with his mom and Nell, why he would go to such drastic measures if he didn't truly think there was also something wrong with him, which he does seem to believe. So that's what was interesting to me. But I also liked that we got to see dad talk about his relationship with Olivia and he talked about how they separated for a week after Steve was born. But then after that, they fought with love and they were always fighting from the same team and working toward a common goal, which I think is really admirable. And so I appreciated learning a little bit more about their relationship. And in the previous episode, we heard Olivia note that their relationship was solid and that those last few days didn't count. So we're getting a little bit more of that backed up with what dad talks about here. Yeah, this was a nice conversation between Steve and Hugh. I, I do like all of the all of the insight that we get into this family prior to living in Hill House. The fact that Hugh and Olivia had such a symbiotic relationship, he describes as her being like a kite and him being like the line, him tethering her to earth without her floating away, but also her keeping him up instead of just crashing down to the ground. It was a sweet, it was a sweet statement and metaphor. And we also saw some of this in the previous episode by the sort of ghost slash coping mechanism version of the mom that she does seem really sweet and intuitive 
positive. And I thought for the first time this episode, though, that the actor playing Hugh, adult Hugh, really does not look old enough. Because (laughs) assuming that he should be probably roughly 70 years old, maybe not quite that old, but like in his 60s, I believe. I've always thought that he looked too old. (laughs) Like, I guess I never really considered the fact that his youngest children were 32. But I always just thought he looked so much older than all the other actors. And maybe that's just because all the other actors are actually super young. (laughs) Well, he has some very unfortunate hair that I think he's got a hairdo that I just don't really know. It looks he constantly looks like he's like slept on his hair kind of wrong. And then it's like pushed down in the back. And I don't know. Anyway. And so another aspect of this episode is the siblings wanting to find Luke after he's left the funeral. Dad and Steve go out looking for him in the car. Shirley eventually gets a call that Luke has stopped at a gas station and we figure out that this is on the way to Hill House. We see the gas station and dad is there. We learn that Luke filled up both the car and five gas cans. So dad gets super freaked out after this and reveals that the house is the most dangerous place in the world for all of them, but especially for Steve. And we find out, as I said before, that Steve at least did see one ghost at Hill House. He just didn't realize them. Yeah. So probably my favorite part in this episode was the change in the father after he goes in the gas station and realizes that Luke is buying these gas cans in order to try and burn down Hill House. The father for the last three episodes has been having a really hard time like putting sentences together. He's just very timid and quiet. He acts like someone who I think rightfully knows that at least some of his kids aren't going to believe what he says or trust him or he's made mistakes in his past. He clearly has not been around as much. In Steve's eyes, he has not given the full story about what happened at Hill House. So I love the very drastic switch that happens when he comes back out to the car, gets in the front seat and is like, I'm driving. And Steve is like, what's going on? He's like, listen, shut up. (laughs) I know what's going on here. I'm going to tell you about Hill House. Listen up, understand it because we're going to save your brother's life. You know, he needs our help right now. And yeah, so they, he says that their family is like an unfinished meal to Hill House that they got away and it keeps trying to draw them back in, which is obviously what happened with Nell. And now it's not exactly drawing Luke in for the same reasons. Luke is very upset about this situation. And so he's going to attack the house, but the house is going to attack back, basically. This is when he talks about the witness marks on a clock and how that is similar to Hill House and how he said that Steve had been seeing witness marks the whole time he was there, but he didn't even realize it. He said in his books, there's a couple things that he wrote that the father realized were either ghosts or I don't know if I want to say like hauntings or things that were happening with Hill House that were supernatural that Steve witnessed and didn't just didn't realize what it was at the time. So for example, and I think this one is a little bit shoehorned just because Steve as a whatever 12 year old, however old he was at the time, he really has the ability to remember like tiny details. Like I'm just trying to picture the book that he wrote where he's saying, and then I walked upstairs to see my mom and pass the man fixing the clock. Why would he have written in that tiny detail? Seems kind of funny. When I was watching the scene of Steve walking upstairs and I noticed that there was this old man fixing the clock, I did not recognize who he was at the time, but I did notice that there was some weird things going on in the background that I couldn't really tell if it was like a reflection or what, but there there was sort of something I saw in the background that looked like maybe some kind of ghost reflection activity there. So that's that's one, obviously, and that Mr. Crane says, I never hired someone to fix the clock. That person wasn't 
wasn't there. You saw a ghost. But on top of that, we also know that there was no treehouse, which I had always just assumed came with the house, that there was a treehouse there. I, I didn't believe that Hugh would have built it, but he was like, look, there was no treehouse there and we were flipping a house. We were only supposed to be there for like eight weeks. I did not have time to build a treehouse. And I think that this is something that's also weird of like either Luke and Steve never once mentioned while they were actually living there to their father that they were in the treehouse. Like you would think it would come up in conversation like, oh, Steve, where's your brother? Oh, he's in the treehouse. Like either they never mentioned it or the father just like didn't believe them, dismissed it or just decided to let them let them play in a treehouse that didn't exist. Well, it did come up in the first episode. Steve brings it up to mom that Luke is in his treehouse and she has the similar Mrs. Dudley reaction where she's like, what? You know, not really sure what's going on. Yeah, I missed that one. Interesting. Interesting. But this is at this point when he was talking about the treehouse is when I connected like, oh, I bet there are rooms and potentially one that we could add to the list is maybe the room that Theo was practicing dancing in. I'm not 100% sure, but it seems like there are some rooms in the house that sort of have built themselves around the kids, either to just sort of in a friendly way, like symbiotic, you're living here, I'm going to make you comfortable, here's some stuff, you know, that you want, here's a room for you and what you need, kind of room of requirement e way, or like in a way to trap them there, like we're trying to draw you in, here's a treehouse, I don't know. Yeah, so hopefully we will get some more answers about what this these mysterious rooms are and how they're connected. At the end of the episode, we do see that Luke arrives at Hill House and instead of the nice warm glow that Nellie got, he gets a red glow from the house. He goes inside, lays down gasoline, throws a lighter, but the house doesn't burn. And then he sees mom in a red dress at the top of the stairs and he gets grabbed by the the flapper woman that we've seen previously and she grabs his face. And I think we're supposed to believe that this is Poppy, who we heard Mrs. Dudley talk about, who owned the vanity that Steve was making up for his mom. So we hear some about Poppy, who was the wife of Mr. Hill, William Hill, the one that we found the dead body of in the previous episode or previous couple episodes, who bricked himself into the wall. We hear from Mrs. Dudley that both William and Poppy met in a insane asylum or some sort of uh, institution of some kind, and that that's where they fell in love. Now, do we know what the relation, who's Hazel? What's the relation with Hazel? Is Hazel William's mother? Who I forgot who this was. Yeah, I don't know if William is supposed to be the man in the bowler hat, because we did see that the man in the bowler hat did have a cane, but we don't directly see... But there was a cane in the wall, bricked in with the dead body. Right. So that's where I'm thinking maybe that is William. I couldn't remember if when we hear about Hazel, that we also hear that her... Well, no, it wouldn't be the husband. Maybe their brother and sister? I don't know. I don't remember. But Hazel's another person that that we've heard of, another person who had lived in the house. That was the sick the sick older woman that Claire attended to. But yeah, so we find, we see a picture of Poppy that does look a lot like the woman in the flapper dress who is the form that we see grab Luke and grabs Luke with both arms coming from opposite directions around his head, in my mind, as if the person is about to like twist his neck. Ooh. That's the way that I saw them grabbing it, like as if they were going to real quick try and snap his neck, which I hope doesn't happen because I can't deal with more death of the Crane family 
family. Either way, it's not good. <laughs> no, it's not good either way. I'm not happy about it. Safe to say that Luke's attempt to murder the house does not work. Yes, that was a fail, he, but he did give it a good old Andrew's man try. Yes, he did. Maybe he could have tried to just, like, why did he go in the house? Couldn't he have just tried to, like, light it from the outside? Also, was he uh, unclear if he was, like, planning to escape? Or it if doesn't he was planning seem to like escape wasn't his plan. And, yo, know, because the doors were shut. It's not even like he had had the doors open behind him as if he was going to run out. So he's like, if I'm going to go down, I'm taking the house with me. But that didn't really work very well. Anyway. We probably won't get any resolution on what's happened to Luke, though. It's probably just going to be left as a cliffhanger forever. Well, there's two episodes left, so they better I give me know. something. Oh, um, okay, stop. Be quiet. Okay, so that is the real main plot. There's sort of a subplot going on with Shirley and Theo as well, which has to do a lot with the fallout, both from what Theo saw at the end of the last episode, the mom's ghost, zombie, whatever, and also with the argument that Shirley and Theo are in, which I'm going to put like primarily at this point, I think we've moved past the money situation a little bit and are more concentrating on the whole, it looks like I caught you with my husband situation. Yes, it definitely seems that Shirley is still holding some very large resentment towards both Kevin and Theo. And we see her at home alone on Halloween. There's some weird instances of knocking and the doorbell ringing when she has the light off. So she doesn't want people around. But when every time she opens opens the door, there's no one there. And then Theo comes over to talk and they both experience it where there's no one there, but they still continue to hear the banging. Then we see them have a fight that doesn't really get resolved. But there is a, a potentially interesting altercation that happens here. Yeah. So couple things, the knocking and the doorbell ringing with no one there, obviously eerie. We also briefly see the cheersing guy again, who I'm just like, who are you? Shirley does not even really seem that concerned with him. This is the third time we've seen him now. Just calmly sits there, does a little cheers with his glass, puts it back down. Who is this guy? I want to know. We all want to know. I think I care more about this than what's in the red room. Really? Because it, well, because this is just so normal and it's like not mentioned. She doesn't mention it. No one else sees him. I just want to know. Okay. So that happens. And then we also have a couple more weird things. Theo and Shirley start driving. Also, I guess to go to the house, which is just not going to be good. And and this took me aback for a second because all of a sudden they're, they're having this argument in the car and then a screaming face looked like Nell came between them and it's she screamed but it was like a low scream very creepy scream to me it almost sounded like tire or brakes screeching yeah like it didn't really sound like a like a her voice it was like a squealy low kind of noise it's also a very quick moment. It's really fast. Yeah, I kept going back to see it. And then we do hear that Theo points out that that was her. That was Nell. And so that makes it more obvious. But it's one of those where if you weren't paying close enough attention, you wouldn't really know who it was necessarily. Right. And this again, I think, comes at a moment when the siblings are arguing. And to me, it doesn't seem as much like this is I, much like the coffin getting pushed over, much like Theo may or may not being pushed out of a chair. See, 
seems like Nell just trying to be heard and have her siblings stop arguing and like get on the same page and concentrate on what's important. That to me is what I'm was the impression I was getting from this because it seemed more like a noise to break to jolt them out of the argument as opposed to like really attack them or anything. Plus Shirley doesn't really seem that perturbed. I mean, she swerves her car, but then Theo is taking this much more seriously. And then we hear this whole story from Theo where she tries to explain what happened with Kevin. She says that we saw a couple episodes ago when she took her glove off and touched Nell's dead body. And then she was very scared by what she saw. And we didn't know what it was, but we find out now that she saw nothing, she felt nothing, and that the nothingness filled her up inside and she hasn't been able to feel anything since then. I assume that she means like emotions is, is I think what she's saying because she says, I wasn't able to grieve. I wasn't even really able to get angry. So I tried to drink. That didn't work. And she says that she hadn't been able to feel anything. And so when the power went off, she was in the dark and she couldn't feel anything. And all of a sudden, Kevin was there and he was like a beam of light to her. And she reached out for him and he pushed her away before anything had happened. But just that contact with him was enough for her to start feeling things again. And she said that the that the shame she felt then was better than the absolute nothingness. So she doesn't regret it, even though she knows that it was a mistake. Yeah, so I think that it is an, em- an emotional feeling of nothing, which seems pretty unbearable with the, how we hear Theo describe it. And she also reveals that that's why she brought Trish over and, you know, she wanted to be touched. She wanted to have this feeling, but even the physical contact of someone she presumably has feelings for does nothing for her. And so it was only the the shame of being with your sister's husband that really knocked her out of that. And so she didn't regret it because it was better than everything else that she had been feeling, which just, again, really makes you empathize with Nell and what she would have been going through. Or sympathize, maybe. Yeah, the thing about Nell is I, I think the nothingness came more so from the fact that it was a dead person. I don't know if Thea's ever touched someone who was dead before. She does say that she wonders if this is how mom feels, is this how Nell felt. I don't believe that Nell felt empty and like she couldn't feel anything. I think Nell was felt a lot of fear and anxiety and sadness. I think it's probably more stemming from the fact that she was a dead body that she was touching. But I guess that more so is like, is this what Nell feels now being dead? Is there no beyond from this? I think also this explains some of why I noticed that in the last episode and in this episode, Kevin seems to be, he seems to be acting very normal. I'm trying to think of how to explain this. He he is acting like someone who knows that he didn't do anything wrong and is just like patiently waiting for Shirley to kind of get on board with that. And the fact that it seems like Theo was reaching out for him, not because it was him, but just because it was a person there that she was trying to see if there could be anything, you know, felt from it. And and Kevin obviously just like pushed her away immediately. (laughs) So he's fine. Uh, He's taking the kids out. I love that Kevin is just like an innocent person and all this and that like he, he doesn't have any weirdness, even so much that last episode he noted when they mentioned the bent neck lady, he's like, who's the bent neck lady? Like Shirley's never even told him about any of this. I, he's just so pure. Well, he, he gets the money from the books, but he's definitely never been able to read them. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Why hasn't he read the book? Oh, well. Anyway, so that's all I had from this episode. I wanted to note one other thing. I've mentioned in the past how the main theme song sounds a lot like a song from Game of Thrones. A lot of the music in this episode, particularly the music at the end when Luke is at Hill House, sounds a lot like Twilight, like just Twilight music. If you've ever watched Twilight and heard the Bella's lullaby or any of the other sort of whimsical, they're kind of whimsical 
kind of spooky songs that are in the background. It sounds a lot like this. Not the same composer, but just wanted to note it. Okay, shall we get into some of our segments? Yeah. So again, I'm going a little light on the would you rather. So on Halloween, would you rather hand out candy or go trick-or-treating? And this is if trick-or-treating was not age-restricted. We are not in a pandemic where you're not supposed to be exposing yourself to people. So this is a like very nice hypothetical situation. Trick-or-treating all the way. I trick-or-treated all through high school. We, my neighborhood that I grew up in, all of the kids were roughly the same age. So it's not like we had a rule where you had to be under a certain age to trick-or-treat. It was basically just until we all left for college. So I think a couple years in high school, I did other things like just sort of handed out candy or had a party or whatever, or went to a, went to a party or something. But I mean, I, I can't remember if it was my senior year, my junior year of high school, but one of the two, I literally just waited till everyone else went trick-or-treating. Me and my friend Rachel, who does the Twilight podcast with me, we put on footy pajamas and just ran down the entire street grabbing whatever leftover candy was was there after all the kids had gone through. So yeah, I'd definitely choose trick-or-treating. I mean, handing out candy can be fun when it's not super busy and you can watch a movie and then get up every once in a while to hand out some candy, but I've handed out candy before now living in a city where like you there's no break. You might as well just stand on the porch because it's kid after kid after kid after kid for like three hours and then eventually you run out of candy and you just have to go inside. <laughs> yeah, I am. I really like candy, so <laughs> I would choose the trick-or-treating as well just for that reason. And it's kind of nice. I mean, if you're handing out, you can dress up, but it's not always what most people do. I think it's fun. I dressed up last year. I was one of the girls from The Shining. We didn't go trick-or-treating, but we did dress up. And you made some TikToks, right? Or was that... <laughs> that still was, had the we costume. did that recently, but yeah. we still had the costume. <laughs> yeah. So for our superlatives, did you have a moment that stood out to you as the funniest or most lighthearted? Yeah, for me, it was when Shirley and Theo were fighting in their house and Shirley punches Theo. She says punches. It kind of looked like more like she slapped her in the boob. And there was just this like weird sister sibling moment where they just stand there shocked for a second. And Theo's like, did you just punch me in the boob? (laughs) I don't know why I loved that moment because it's like, oh, hold on. We took this too far. If it was the face, that would be understandable but you just punched me in the boob and and I almost thought for a second that we were gonna have some kind of like side story about how Theo had some kind of previous boob injury and this was like a big no-no but no it was just more like an awkward oh why'd you do that kind of moment I thought that was really funny yeah I think it was a good tension reliever in that moment I also really enjoyed that we got a revisit of Captain Lame so (laughs) Shirley's son is dressed up as Zorro and Kevin makes the joke that you know I'm really sad you you're not going as Captain Lame yeah, I thought that would have been really good too. <laughs> I didn't notice what his daughter was. Did you notice? No, I didn't pay attention. Yeah, I wasn't really paying attention to that. I did note the Zoro thing anyway. <laughs> yeah. So for Scariest, what was what was the highlight for you? Even though it was short for me, it's when Nell pops up between Theo and Shirley in the car, just because it was a loud noise and that's what I don't like. <laughs> yeah, I thought the moment where the banging and the doorbell ringing at Shirley's house when Theo's inside was pretty frightening, but yeah, I I mean, it's, I think jump scares probably always get a nod up because there was something actually there, right? We don't know what was happening with the banging, but we do know that that was Nell. (laughs) Now, do you have any kind of theories in terms of the banging on the wall? Like, was this just more randomness from Hill House trying to pull them out of their safe haven, get them out of that house? Because this is 
coupled with Hugh calling them and telling them to stay put. And it's like, uh, we just heard a bunch of banging. We are definitely not going to stay put. Yeah, it definitely seemed to me like it was pointing us back to one of the first episodes where Theo comes into Shirley's room and they hear the banging, the super loud banging on the walls. And the dad says that it's just the pipes. So I think we're meant to believe this is their way of Hill House calling them back. Mm, Gross. Okay. So now we have some possible ghosts. We mentioned Steve seeing someone in in the window at the fertility appointment, and it seems to be a mom, but it's an obscured window, so it's hard to tell. The Cheers guy, who we still have no idea who this guy is. And then some confirmed ghosts of the clock worker, Nell in Shirley's car, mom at Hill House, and the woman behind Luke at Hill House, presumably Poppy. Yes, and we've already mentioned most of the strange happenings, but we have the mom talking to herself, saying, of course you're safe with me to the twins who are not there in the room, the mold on the forever home model pieces, the mom smashing the mirror on the desk, Mrs. Dudley not knowing where the game room is, dad saying that there was no treehouse, Shirley's doorbell ringing and knocking but no one being there. So one of those that we didn't actually talk about is the mold on the forever forever home model piece. When Shirley's picking up pieces from the model home, she inspects one of them and it looks like the same mold in the shape of a figure that we saw in the basement of Hill House. And it's it's on one of the pieces of the broken model home. Oh, I didn't notice that. I noticed that she was looking at the pieces, but I thought she was just noting that they were broken. I'll have to go back and look at that again. Yeah, I think some of this is also showing like we're going to continue infecting your life and your house and your even your future home that doesn't exist yet. It's very symbolic. Yeah, and not very comforting. <laughs> no, not at all. All right. Well, another episode done, a shorter episode of the show. I'm not going to say that it's a lighter one, but I do feel like it was one of the most cohesive episodes that we've had so far, which was refreshing. All right. Feel free to send us comments and questions on our website or on Twitter at KowskiCast. That's cow with a K. You can also check out all of our other podcasts on our website or on iTunes. Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. We've got your Twilight, Riverdale, Revenge, and more coming in the future. You can follow me online at Frail Mary, and you can follow Hannah at hannahv.exe on Instagram. And if you enjoyed the podcast, we would love it if you left a five-star rating and a review on iTunes. It helps other people find out that we're here. Okay, everyone, that's all for this week's episode. Thank you for joining us, and we'll be back next time for our coverage of episode nine, Screaming Mimis. For now, we're the Kowski Cast. Thanks for listening. Bye. previous boob injury.